0: Thank <laughs> I said
1: be some motherfucking president and
2: I run more than my motherfucking man. They wanna kill your confidence and you like a rock map. you see the police wanna brother, brother. I love her, ocean am your mother, eat her daughter. We need me a fresh water. Only if you need a plumber, I'm a professional drama robber. I believe the anger, the poor, than the flame. I condemn anyone who doesn't know it. I don't know what it is, I don't know what it is. I, I, I don't think the way it's just been. Thank you. Incoming car.
3: Oh shit, I missed that one. Oh shit, it's gonna be 9
1: This is NPR News. Support comes from Saturn Systems of Duluth, offering staff augmentation and project software development services, a domestic alternative to offshore
4: and metro outsourcing. Offshore to the North Shore with Saturn Systems. More at SaturnSys.com. Gansborg was inspired by the Sex Pistols God Save the Queen which came out in 1977. The Sex Pistols in turn were inspired by Jimi Hendrix's Star Spangled Banner. From Jimi to Johnny to Serge, it all connects. Happy Bastille Day.
0: Extraordinary feat of French cycling. That's
4: just ahead. (laughs) You're listening to the world.
1: Support comes from Saturn Systems of Duluth, offering staff augmentation and project software development services, a domestic alternative to offshore and metro outsourcing. Offshore to the North Shore with Saturn Systems, more at
0: SaturnSYS.com. How long can an... U.S. are accidental, and a new CDC study
3: suggests many women struggle to pay for and access birth control. The current state of contraception tonight at 9 on 1A. In the Twin Cities, skies are mostly
4: cloudy. Temperature is 69 degrees. I'm Marco Werman. This is the world. Here's something for our when super hard just isn't hard enough file. Pro cyclist Lachlan Morton just finished all 21 stages of the Tour de France with his final laps of the Champs-Élysées in Paris. Hang on a minute, I hear you say. That's not the normal thunder of applause at the finish line. And the tour isn't over. The rest of the riders are still cycling the French mountains. This Australian rider, he completed something arguably more impressive. It's called the Alt Tour. Lachlan's ride included not only more than 2,000 miles of the official tour, he also rode the transfers between stages, adding another 1,300 miles. NBC Sports caught up with Lachlan during his Alt Tour. Generally, I'm doing close to 300 kilometers each day. That's 186 miles. Yeah, when you take into account the weight of the bike and the amount of altitude meters, it makes for some very long days. No doubt. The Tour de France is already one of the hardest endurance contests on the planet. Um, Why make it harder? Here's Lachlan again on NBC. We're trying to celebrate the
1: origins of the tour and raise some money for a good cause at the same time. And also, I think,
4: just to put me through a whole bunch of hell. (laughs) The final stage did not reflect that personal hell, though. To avoid traffic, Lachlan finished up on Tuesday, rolling Going down the Champs Elysees while Paris was asleep. Then popped open a bottle. French champagne, of course. It has been a week since Haiti's president Jovenel Moïse was assassinated, and the political chaos there is nowhere near settled. For Haitians living outside the country, there's a hunger to connect with other expats. Not only Tali is one of those people. The Philadelphia-based singer-songwriter just goes by Tali. Her music is a mix of folk music from Haiti and soul. Here's her take on the Haitian folk tune, Cousin. Cousin. C'est
2: pas ça
4: Tali is with us from her home in Philadelphia. Welcome, Tali. Good to meet you.
2: Hi, thanks for having me.
4: So as I said, this is a Haitian folk tune. Tell me about it. What, what's it about?
2: At Face Value is a song about a scorned lover, but it's a, it's a song someone complaining to hear about not seeing the fruits of their labor they are very poetic people, so it's sung for anyone who's broken promises. And I've heard it sung as protest for the government because who breaks promises more than politicians? I just really slowed it down, and that was my take on it. <laughs>
4: So I want to know a little about yourself and your connections today to Haiti. I know you were born in Haiti, but live in Philadelphia now. What's your story, Tali?
2: Yeah, I was born in Haiti. Uh, My family moved here when I was a baby because my parents went to grad school in Philadelphia. So we lived here until I was seven, and then I moved to Haiti. We lived there from when I was seven to to the age of 17. And so I was sent to live here at the end of high school because of um you know it wasn't safe at the time seven to 17 are the important years years i became a person I, I like to say so i spent the important formative years in port-au-prince
4: right so you were saying at that time haiti was not safe you came back to philadelphia uh, again we're seeing that today what are you hearing from family and friends in haiti this week
2: yeah there's just, there's a lot of questions a lot of confusion a lot of theories of what might have happened you know the only facts we know is that the president was assassinated that's what we know for sure you know um Everyone I know is just glued to the radio and you know glued to their phones and trying to figure out, trying to put the pieces together of what might have happened. Because, well, you know this assassination is no cause for celebration at all. I don't, I don't see anyone rejoicing in it. But there was a big movement against this president prior to his assassination, um, and a big movement of you know asking for answers to corruption and impunity and the, you know, the climate of violence that was that has been present in Haiti for the last few years and has made life
4: impossible for people over there. Have you reached out to Haitians here in the U.S.? And what are the conversations you've been having?
2: Yeah, you know, uh, it's hard to separate fake news from real news. So, you know, it's kind of why I do the work I do, because I think people are kind of sometimes confused about what sources to trust and a lot of conversations are just untangling the conspiracy theories and the confusion some people who don't even believe he was assassinated and uh, yeah so, so many questions and a lot of fear
4: yeah and totally when you when you talk about the work you do I mean you're not just a musician you're also a blogger right
2: right so I have an online media outlet that I run with my friends. It's called Woy Magazine, W-O-Y. That's like Creole for wow or low. And so it's just kind of a place people can go like, what's going on in Haiti? And we kind of break it down in a very simple way for them. And then we have a podcast with the blog, the newsletter, and there's podcasts that
4: are more Haitian history based. So as a Haitian observer, writer, podcaster, and musician, what does this moment mean to you, Tali?
2: I'm, I'm pretty upset, <laughs> I'm pretty upset and worried, worried that this doesn't mean that we're going to repeat same mistakes, you know, because if you look historically in Haiti, in times of really big political upheaval, that's what preceded foreign intervention and foreign intervention oftentimes means a lot of human rights violations. And so right now, I and other people, we're very nervous about what
4: is the way forward is your music helping at all? Are you working on any new material?
2: I am. I've been, I've been working on material just based on what I've been seeing this past year in the pandemic. And just, uh, I think, like, the, the underlying theme of all my music has always been, like, I want to sing about a world I want to see, right? It leads back to what's going on right now. I see activists and people like myself and regular people in Haiti as we're calling for a Haitian solution to what's going on. A truly Haitian solution because I I think we have not been given that chance to do that.
4: Well, Tali, while we wait for your new songs to come out, we'll go out with a song today from your previous album. Uh, it's a song called Cape What's it about?
2: I consider it my mission statement. Que in Creole words mean calm heart, the English equivalent would be peace of mind. It's a prayer for myself and the people in my community. Well, can we have reached that place where we're okay.
4: Yeah, that kind of peace of mind, that's a good wish. Asian musician and blogger Tali Serra speaking with us from Philadelphia. Thank you so much. It's great to meet you.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
4: And this is where we leave you today. The world comes to you from the Nan and Bill Harris studio at GBH in Boston. I'm Marco Werman. We'll be right back here for you tomorrow.
2: The world is supported in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people, by the Ford Foundation, P.R.I. 2020 donors, including Marguerite Steed Hoffman, who believes that substantive fact-based reporting prepares citizens to contribute to a vibrant democracy. The Rose Family Fund, investing in informed risk-taking. The Tagney Jones Family Fund, Robert and Sharon Ryan, and Peter and Catherine Darrow. By the Henry Luce Foundation, by the PRX Ambassador Council, whose members include FJC, a foundation of donor-advised funds, at FJC.org, Genji Cohan, and Mary Ways. The world's theme music is composed by Ned Porter. The World is a co-production of GBH Boston and PRX. is the place we call home. On NPR News with Angela Davis, we explore the complexities and joys of life in our state. I hope you'll join me and your neighbors in conversation weekdays at 11.
3: Fresh Air is next on NPR News, 91.1 KNOW, Minneapolis-St. Paul, discovering what matters. We're supported public radio. 68 degrees, skies are mostly cloudy in the Twin Cities, and we expect skies to remain mostly cloudy, at least during the evening hours, and partly cloudy after midnight. A low tonight in the upper 50s, tomorrow's high, low 80s, mostly sunny skies, although there will be some haze from the Canadian wildfires, northeast winds around five miles miles per hour. Clear, continued haze on Thursday night, low temps in the low 60s, and then for Friday, looks like uh, sunny skies and high temperatures in the middle 80s. It's 8 o'clock.
1: From WHYY in Philadelphia, this is Fresh Air. I'm Dave Davies, and for Terry Gross. Imagine performing at a high level in a high-stress, high-stakes profession while binge drinking three days and then detoxing for two in a regular cycle for years. Imagine that profession is Major League Baseball. C.C. Sabathia was a dominant pitcher for the Cleveland Indians, Milwaukee Brewers, and New York Yankees, winning a Cy Young Award and a World Series championship. And for most of his 19 seasons, he was an alcoholic. He tells the story of his youth, his remarkable career, and his turn toward sobriety in a new memoir called Till the End. Also, Justin Chang samples from offerings from this year's Cannes Film Festival, and jazz critic Kevin Whitehead remembers two early electric guitarists born 100 years ago, July 17th. Both came from the Midwest and were mentored by African-American musicians. First News.
5: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. As part of his effort to push a key piece of his legislative agenda across the finish line, President Biden today met with Senate Democrats on Capitol Hill. A lunchtime meeting coming a day after party leaders announced they'd reached a compromise on a multi-trillion dollar domestic spending plan, which reportedly would include money for climate change, health care, and family service programs. Speaking of the White House today, the president said he also continued to show up support for money for the nation's roads, bridges, and water systems. We put together a plan that uh, with infrastructure. And uh, it's a bipartisan plan. I think we're in good shape. There may be some slight
3: adjustments to the uh, board, and that's going to get down to what the the Congress wants to do. I've laid out how I think we pay for it.
5: We have an agreement still with only narrow Democratic majorities in the House and Senate, the deal is far from settled. More than 93,000 people in the U.S. died due to overdoses in 2020. That's according to new provisional data from the National Center for Health Statistics. NPR's Ritu Chatterjee reports, the pandemic exacerbated the ongoing opioid crisis. The
2: overdose deaths mark a nearly 30% jump from 2019, and the highest rise ever seen in the U.S. since at least 1999, says Dr. Nora Volkov the director of the National Institute on Drug Abuse. The magnitude of the cost to our society of lives lost from overdoses is gigantic. She says people aged 35 to 44 were the most affected. Pandemic-related loss of jobs, housing, social support, and prolonged uncertainty drove up drug use, she says. While the loss of in-person supports and treatment services made it more likely for people in recovery programs to relapse. The new provisional data suggests that the vast majority of deaths were caused by the synthetic opioid fentanyl. Ritu
5: Chatterjee, NPR News. Flooding during high tides is accelerating around the U.S. due to climate change. NPR's Rebecca Hersher reports the annual high tide flood report from federal scientists finds sea levels are rising because humans are burning fossil fuels.
2: Rising sea levels mean that when high tides happen, water is more likely to flood streets and homes. In many areas, ocean water overwhelms sewers and drainage pipes and seeps through storm drains and manhole covers. Scientists often call this sunny day flooding because it happens without a storm. And it's accelerating. Last year, 14 U.S. cities set records for the number of days with sunny day flooding, including Galveston, Texas, Pensacola, Florida, and Charleston, South Carolina. Federal scientists say the average number of high-tide flood days in the U.S. is expected to double by the end of the decade. Elevating homes, expanding sewers, and installing pumps and valves to keep out seawater can help. Rebecca Hersh. NPR News.
5: It mixed close on Wall Street today. The Dow was up 44 points. The Nasdaq down 32 points. This is NPR. Norwegian Cruise Line says it will challenge a new law in the state of Florida that prevents cruise companies from requiring passengers to show proof of vaccination against the virus that causes COVID-19. company filing the suit in federal court in Miami contending the law jeopardizes safe operation of cruise vessels by increasing the risk of contracting the virus. Norwegian has said it intends to restart cruises out of Florida ports August 15th but is requiring all passengers be vaccinated. Florida recently put in place a law imposing a 5,000 fine each time a cruise line mandates a passenger provide proof of vaccination, arguing it infringes on people's rights. NASA says it is investing in nuclear-powered rockets. As NPR's Jeff Broenfeld reports, the rockets may someday help
3: astronauts get to Mars. Nuclear-powered rockets use a nuclear reactor to generate thrust. They're more efficient than chemical engines and could potentially enable deep space missions to other planets. NASA will spend around $15 million to have three companies develop designs. Vishal Patel works for one of them, Ultra Safe Nuclear Technologies. He says nuclear has some clear advantages. You could take more stuff with you. Uh, you can get to where you're going faster. We have larger launch windows because of our extra efficiency. So you don't always have to literally wait for the planets to align. But going nuclear won't be cheap. A recent National Academy study said it would take many years of costly research and development before a nuclear rockets could safely carry astronauts. Jeff Brumfield, NPR News.
5: And I'm Jack Spear, NPR News, in Washington. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, supporting those working towards a day when no one has to choose between paying rent, putting food
3: on the table, and protecting their health and the health of others. RWJF.org. For NPR News in the Twin Cities, I'm Perry Finelli. There won't be a statewide requirement on mask wearing in Minnesota public schools at the start of the academic year this fall. Education Commissioner Heather Mueller says the lack of a peacetime emergency means there won't be a statewide COVID-19 plan like last year. Mueller expects the Minnesota Health Department to issue recommendations soon on safety measures. The CDC says mask use will still be required on buses and encouraged for unvaccinated students and staff. Some districts are working on their own safety plans for the coming school year. Tribal and environmental groups opposed to Enbridge Energy's Line 3 oil pipeline have asked the Minnesota Supreme Court to overturn a lower court decision affirming the approvals of the project. The State Commerce Department, which was part of the earlier appeal, is not joining in the appeal this time. The legal move comes as protests continue along the route in northern Minnesota. More than 500 protesters have been arrested or issued citations since construction on the Minnesota leg of the project began last December. Meanwhile, opponents are demanding more transparency from state officials about a spill last week of drilling mud into a river that the pipeline will cross this is npr news this is fresh air I'm Dave Davies, in today for Terry Gross.
1: You might remember our guest today, C.C. Sabathia, as the dominating left-handed pitcher for the Cleveland Indians and the New York Yankees. He was a towering figure on the mound, often with his cap tilted over his right eye. Sabathia was a six-time All-Star, a winner of the Cy Young Award, and a starter for the Yankees team that won the 2009 World Series. He's one of only a handful of players to win 250 games and notch 3,000 strikeouts, numbers That will probably land him in the Hall of Fame someday. But Sabathia fought some demons in his 19 seasons in the big leagues. He was an alcoholic for 15 of those years, somehow managing to be sober when he took the mound and drinking himself into oblivion and often fisticuffs much of the rest of the time. Sabathia tells the story of his youth, his baseball career, and his turn to sobriety in a new memoir written with Chris Smith. It's called Till the End. C.C. Sabathia retired from baseball after the 2019 season. He co-hosts the R2C2 podcast with sportscaster Ryan Rucco. And you can see a documentary about his life called Under the Grapefruit Tree on HBO. C.C. Sabathia, welcome to Fresh
6: Air. Oh, thank you.
1: You grew up in Vallejo, California. In a neighborhood called The Crest, and you write that when, you know, later in your career, when big leaguers would come with you to visit the old neighborhood, they would say,
6: man, this is a rough neighborhood. Did it feel that way to you as a kid? no it wasn't it wasn't um you know that way to me you know i didn't feel that way it was always you know home you know it was always a safe place for me i mean outside looking in it could be you know you could feel like it's a rough place but um you know when that's your home and you know all the people you know there or you know either related to you or know somebody that knows your family um you feel safe in those communities um your dad left when you were, I think,
1: 12, right? When you were an only My child. My when I was 12,
6: yeah. you 12 and
1: 12, you, and your grandmother's house was kind of a center of gravity for you. Your mom worked an awful lot. Um, grandma was a big force in your life, and she and both your parents, as you tell it, saw you early on as somebody destined to be a pro ball player. How did that
6: shape your experience growing up? It just, you know, that just made me believe, you know, my grandmother and my dad, you know, just from the from jump, you know, believed in my dream and, you know, would only let me, you know, do things that would fuel, you know, being being an athlete. So, you know, that that just gave me the belief right away that I could go out there and, you know, pull this off or, you know, be able to make it, you know, from Vallejo to the big league. So, you know, they were convinced that this was going to be my life, you know, so. So it made me, you know really think that you know this is this is where I would end up. Did they coach you? Yes. My dad coached me. Uh, My dad coached me uh, a couple years. Um, You know, he he spent a lot of time with me out out in the um, in the yard. Obviously, um, you know, working on skills and different things like that. Uh, My grandmother was supporting a different way. She came to every game. She didn't miss a game up until she passed away. My senior year, whether it was football, basketball, um, baseball, everything. I mean, and you know, she was literally at, at at every event that I had. She was there to support. One little detail I love is that you're dad when you were in little league would intervene
1: with managers who wanted you to pitch too much to every game this kind of matters
6: doesn't it for a young arm yeah i mean i think so you know he he would never let me you know um get over pitched or you know um you know overused especially as a youngster um and and i think that's what definitely you know saved my arm and was you know able to to pitch as long as i did and you know i think everybody realized that i can you know throw hard and i can throw strikes um you know right away you know from the time i started playing baseball so normally those kids tend to be pitchers only and my dad was you know um you know he was he was uh he was adamant about me not you know throwing my arm out in high school, you were a multi-sport athlete. You played football, you played basketball, and you
1: played baseball. And you had scouts showing up, I mean, well before your senior year. I mean, baseball scouts and college scouts from big programs. Um, and so you had a lot of options as you were finishing high school. I mean, you could have been drafted
6: as a position player. You were a great hitter. Uh, what made you choose pitching? Um, the Indians did. You know, when I got drafted, when I was, uh... On the phone, I was talking. To, I think I was talking to Mark Shapiro or maybe Dan O'Dowd, and I didn't know if they had drafted me as a hitter or a pitcher. So um, it, was, it was honestly just what the Indians saw um, that they could turn me into. So that's you know I, I thank them for seeing that vision and, and honestly really getting drafted by them. Um, you know I think shaped my career because I think if I get drafted as a position player, you know maybe it doesn't work out, then I try to go back to pitching. It's just a different it's a different path. So um, I'm glad that Paul Kogan and, and like I said, Mark Shapiro, Dan Dow saw me as a pitcher and was able to, you know, develop me into a starter. Yeah, those were people in the Indians
1: organization. So, so you were picked in the the amateur draft in uh, what what year are we talking about? Two thousand is it? Nineteen ninety eight. Uh, Nineteen ninety eight. Um, which doesn't mean you're going to the big leagues right away, right? I mean, that's 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 what's interesting about baseball. And you have this kind of weird thing where you are a marquee recruit. You got a signing bonus of one point three million dollars, but. Your life, once you start, they send you the
6: minor leagues. You're not exactly living in luxury, are you? (laughs) No, I mean you know, and I think that's the thing that you know people don't really understand. You know, you get drafted in baseball. You know, you're going to the minor leagues. You're going to you know some of these smaller towns, and you know where there's no publicity, and you know you got to fight your way back to you know just even get to Double A, or you know to you know let alone make it to the big league. So yeah, I mean I think that's you know that's that's a big shock for high school kids that don't really realize. You know, once you get drafted, then that's when it becomes a you know a job, and you know you really have. To you know, it becomes you know, literally a you know, a tough time to try to fight your way through you know, the the lower minor league. So, um, yeah, I mean, it was it was a, it was a shell shock, you know, going from Vallejo to you know, getting dropped off in Burlington, North Carolina, and trying to figure out how I was gonna make it, you know, to Cleveland, Ohio to be in the big leagues.
1: Yeah, your first time away from home, small salary, crappy hotels, long bus rides, and, and you're playing against guys who I don't care if you're a highly touted recruit, they're all scrapping together get to the big leagues
6: not easy is it yeah no I mean the lower minor leagues is is, it really is a dog fight because everybody's just trying to get to the next level and you know even guys on your team it's not you know you know it's just a competition you know you're playing with guys that you know there's only a few spots to get to the next the next level and then there's even less spots to get to the next level so um yeah I mean you're competing with the guys that you're playing against and the guys that, that are in your organization um
1: it was interesting to me that when you got to the Indians organization, uh, that the pitching coaches uh, were kind of struck by how little you knew about a lot of the mechanics of
6: pitching, right? They said, Give me, show me a four-scene fastball. Uh, and you said, what? Yeah, so my very first bullpen, um, you know, was with Carl Willis. He was my pitching coach.
0: He's pitching coach for the Indians now. and. This is how I throw my slider. I drop down a little bit when I want to throw a slider. And, you know, I, but. 93, 92 to 93 to 95 to 97 in, in a couple of weeks. as it was to make the adjustment off the field on the field you know
6: things were happening pretty quick
1: another little detail that just i i i loved you you know
0: you said when you were younger your mom would actually catch for you when you were a pitcher and then you got to where it just you were throwing too hard she didn't want to do it anymore That was always a lot of fun because, you know, she she loves
6: baseball. She's got a baseball mind. And, you know, to be able to to talk the game with her um, and even my dad, too, you know, the first couple years when, you know, he came back to Cleveland, um, you know, we would sit out there in the garage and and just talk about the game.
1: Another thing you mentioned is that, you know, I mean, you were always a big guy and you love to eat even when you were a kid. And, you know, your weight could, I guess, could range from, what, 250, sixty to over 300.
6: When you managed to lose weight, what, what did it do to your pitching? Uh, when I lost weight um, during my career, um, yeah,
0: I wasn't, really, I wasn't really effective. You know, I didn't, couldn't throw hard, didn't have anything um, behind my pitches. Um, 310 you know anywhere in that range is where i could
6: you know figure out to pitch well and um but as i got older you know that got tough to you know to be able to pitch with with all that weight and you know obviously having you know knee issues and different things um you know it it just kind of you know help have, have me limping towards the end but um, yeah I mean when I, when I did try to lose weight um, it didn't go well yeah mass equals gas was the expression for sure, <laughs> um, for sure.
1: I remember there was a, a relief pitcher Al Holland for the Phillies years I guess before your time but I remember he, he was a big guy and one year he, you know, he came into spring training thin athletic felt great he said his fastball had nothing it's kind of puzzling isn't it I mean you're not, you're not throwing with your, with your body core are you like a
6: CR in a way yeah you are you do throw with your, with your core you throw with your body and then your arm just kind of lies behind so um, the bigger and, and stronger you can be in your body um, that's why you see the bigger pitchers always pitch well and pitch longer and you know have the longer career because you know they have the the, the bigger body and the bigger frame to be able to handle you know 200 innings a year hmm. you, you know when you got to the Indians um,
1: this was new to you of course and you write in the book a lot about clubhouse atmosphere and how how important it is to have a team that that works together. How are you treated uh, as as the rookie coming on the bench? And you know obviously
6: a a highly performing rookie as it turned out. But how, what was it like for you? Yeah, it was a tough time. You know, it was a different time in the big leagues. Um, you know, coming up for younger players was a lot of haze and a lot of different things going on. Um, you know, I found you know my way with you know and different players and you know a few veterans that you know would help you out. But yeah, it was a tough time for 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 young baseball players back then to be able to to try to break in and, and fit into the I guess the culture of the clubhouse. Um, so you know, I had to take my lumps and you know. Um, but you know, while I was while I was going through that,
0: you know, I always, you know, wanted to make my young players feel like that. So as I got older um, and was able to, to
6: you know, um, you know, be in charge of a few clubhouses and, you know, be a leader in a couple of teams, you know, we made sure that, you know, the rookies came up and felt like they had been there for, you know, 12, you know, 12, 15 years. We are speaking with C.C.
1: Sabathia. He pitched 19 seasons in the big leagues. He has a new memoir called Till the End. We'll continue our conversation in just a moment. This is Fresh Air.
3: Programming
2: is supported by Little Moments Count, whose new racial justice resource page can help assist families on their path to becoming anti-racist at every age. You can learn more at the resources menu at littlemomentscount.org.
5: Programming is supported by Concordia College in Moorhead with a 91% medical school and a 96% law school acceptance rate by its graduates. More information at concordiacollege.edu.
1: This is Fresh Air, and our guest today is C.C. Sabathia. He spent 19 years as a big league pitcher for the Indians, Brewers, and Yankees. He has a new memoir called Till the End. You know, I think of Major League Baseball as having lots of black players. Um, Not so many as I read your book. I mean, did did you feel
6: underappreciated, alienated from white players in the clubhouses you were at? That's a that's a that's a good question. Um, yeah, I mean, when I first came up, there were a lot of um, you know a lot of uh, black players in the league. I mean, even throughout organizations, you know. And as you get as I got, you know, older in the big leagues, you know, there was a shift. You know, um, you know, there was a couple years in the in. In Cleveland, where I was, you know, the only guy on the roster, um, and and that could be tough, you know. Obviously, you know, you don't you don't feel you don't feel alienated, but there's just nobody that in there for you to you know to, to relate to, and and you know talk to about different things, and you know I, I do. I mean, I have a lot of. You know, my best friend in the game is, is White. His name's Dave Risky. He's literally my best friend in the game. Um, but, you know, there are times when, you know, you would want to have somebody in there that you can relate to and talk to. And, you know, you're going through a, a whole, you know, eight, nine-month baseball season. Um, you know, that's, that, that's really hard. And, and, you know, it's based in failure. So, you know, to have somebody that you can hang out with and relate to uh, makes a huge difference during the baseball season. And, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, the numbers are down right now. Um, hopefully we can get them back up to where they were when I was a kid watching the game. Um, and even where, I, where, I, where they were when I was a you know a young player in the big leagues. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the goal of mine is, is to get more kids and, and to get more guys back into the big leagues playing baseball.
1: You write in the book that you had a group text of all 72 active black major league players.
6: Did you, did you build that? What, what, what was this used for? No, this was uh, something that, you know, we had for a long time had been trying to, you know, put something together like we have right now with the Players Alliance. And even Tony Clark, while he was playing, he's the, he's the president of the Player Association. While he was playing, he was adamant on, you know, making sure that we was all connected and stay connected and, you know, he had made sure he, everybody got their email addresses out and, and put us all in the group chat. And this was uh, email chat and, and, and text chat before, you know, we even thought about coming up with the Players Alliance in 2020. So, you know, in a way, we've all been connected. But now, you know, having the Players Alliance and guys seeing the benefit of us really doing stuff collectively, um, it feels good.
1: When you went to the Yankees, you you were a free agent, and you got a contract, $161 million for seven years. At the time, the largest guaranteed contract ever for a big league ball player, I think, right? Uh, No, for a pitcher. For a pitcher, Um, okay. A lot of money. Um, And uh, you know, you, you were very connected to a large extended family and had social relationships who had needs. How did that kind of wealth or the
6: perception of that wealth affect those relationships? Yeah, it made it hard. Um, You know, I think when people see, you know, you get a big contract, they think you have that amount of money on you right then. And, you know, everybody wants, you know, something or see what they can get or trying to figure out if they can get something from you. So that made it difficult, um, you know, trying to navigate that. But, you know, uh, having my mom around to try to figure out everything. My my wife was huge in that, you know, helping us, um, you know, kind of navigate that field. And really being in New York, I think, you know, had we landed on the West Coast, it would have been harder, you know, but being in New York, kind of being so far away, um, it kind of helps you detach a little bit. Yeah, you mentioned your wife, Amber. Um, Just tell us a little, little bit about her and your relationship. You go way back. Yeah, we met, um, I think she was in the 10th grade, um, I, I was in 11th grade at a house party at the beginning of, of the school year and, you know, really just hit it off right away. You know, me and uh, her brother played uh, high school basketball together um, and, you know, like I said, I mean, we just, me and Amber just became, we became friends before anything and I think that's the most important thing for us now is that we are, you know, really close friends and, you and, uh, I think that's what has allowed us to go through, you know, such such the ups and downs that we have in our relationship and in in our lives together, um, is that we have remained friends that whole time. Um, First year at the Yankees, the 2009
1: season, leads you to a World Series. Um, Tell me about the pressure of pitching in the playoffs.
6: You know what, to be honest, that 2009 playoffs, um, I didn't really feel any pressure just because, you know, uh, I pitched in 2007 playoffs in, in, in Cleveland and in 2008 in Milwaukee and felt like, you know, I needed to be perfect. You know, I felt like I needed to be the reason why we won. And I ended up being the reason why we lost. When I went into 2009 um, playoffs, you know, I, you know, I had such a great team. You know, I had Robbie Cano. I had Mark Teixeira. You know, you had uh, A-Rod, you know, Derek Jeter, Posada behind the plate, you know, I just went in and wanted to just do my little part. I felt like if I can just keep it simple, keep it small, keep my goals small, and you know, just you know, win every inning. You know, do my part. That these guys are going to take care of it. And you know, you know, that's what that's what happened. You know, the very first game. You know, I come out. I think I gave up a run or two in the first inning. And you know, Jeter, Derek Jeter, asked me, you know, how I'm feeling. I said, you know, I'm getting into the groove. And you know, he goes up there and hits a hits a two-run homer right away. You know, just to kind of ease my nerves and you know right after he did that you know I just kind of settled in into the playoffs and, and felt good about it. Yeah nice to have a teammate who can just
1: hit a homer to ease your nerves huh? <laughs> yeah for sure. sure. Yeah, I mean, Phillies fans certainly remember that series Chase Utley um, had two home runs in the first game um, but you pitched well you, you were the MVP of the league championship series you mentioned that when you when you were in Cleveland and Milwaukee you pitched in playoff games and you felt that you had to carry the team and it didn't go so well. Um, you said you were the reason we
6: lost? Yeah, I definitely feel like I was the, the reason why, um, you know, we didn't win in 2007. We, I felt like, you know, I think a lot of people felt like was ready to win the World Series. We were, you know, a young team that had been put together, Um, you know, kind of built from the bottom up. That was the Indians, um, right? Yeah. yeah, the Cleveland Indians uh, built.